Hello and welcome to Say That Again Slowly, the Cambridge Festival podcast where students at Cambridge University chat with the experts who have contributed to the festival. We tried to pair up students with researchers and authors from different disciplines to bring things back to the basics. There are no stupid questions here. My name is Kika Hendry, I'm an English student at Trinity Hall, and today I'll be exploring the Deception Island Hut installation with Elizabeth Lewis-Williams, who is the writer-in-residence at the British Antarctic Survey and has created the installation along with Sam Ruddock and Story Machine. Uh, hello everyone, uh, I'm here with Elizabeth Lewis-Williams and we're in Downing site in Cambridge and we're standing by Deception Hut Island and we're just going to have a little walk through and listen, kind of talk about some of the sounds and the, uh, the feeling inside the hut. Um, and Elizabeth is the writer in residence at the moment at the British Antarctic Survey and I was wondering whether you could tell us um, kind of how that happened or kind of what work you do there and how that kind of began. Sure, um, I've been uh, in and out of Bass um, doing my own research in the archives for the last few years. So I started uh, when I was scanning in my dad's black and white photographs. Uh, he was in the Antarctic between 1959 and 1965. Um, and I was trying to write some poetry in response to an unpublished book he'd written. and. Um, I realised that because I've never been to the Antarctic, I had no idea what it sounded like, what it felt like to be there. Um, I had his stories, um, but in the poems I was writing, I was tending to just parrot his words. So my mission in the archives was really to find out a bit more about what it was like to live there uh, and, and using the sort of reports, uh, the charts, the data, the photographs and the stories uh, left by um, in the archives by people who worked there at the same time. So as I'd had that, that kind of long association um, intermittently with Bass, um, I asked if uh, it would be possible to do a day a week um, and I would offer um, a, a writing workshop um, and have had the real privilege of being able to talk to some fascinating people and again spend some time in the archives uh, everybody's I mean it's a really fantastically collegiate positive environment to work yeah. yeah so it's really interesting that both kind of working in the archives the scientifically kind of the research there but also very kind of emotional very personal you know connection with your dad working there I was wondering what did what exactly was he doing there or how I know did it feel to be kind of like working with his documents so. It was um, one of those extraordinary things about um, sort of material, the material archive. Um, so I, for example, there was a food report and it was in Dad's handwriting, or part of it was in Dad's handwriting, and there's something about handwriting that brings somebody who's long gone immediately present. Mm -hmm. So it was quite, it's quite a moving experience from that point of view, and also then extrapolating from that, thinking about all the other people um, who've left documents and unpublished memoirs as mm -hmm. well as their photographs. There's a huge, I mean, it's a treasure trove mm -hmm. of, uh, of memory and memories, mm -hmm. collective as well as individual. Mm -hmm. I think I'm right in saying it's, um, I can't remember the exact title, but it's been recognized as part of the British contribution to UNESCO World Memory. Mm -hmm. um, you can see why. Mm -hmm. uh, any sort of mm. question you might have about uh, what it means to be human and live on the planet mm. is in some way addressed by thinking about Antarctic living. Mm. And mm. Because like fundamentally the hut here is, is a home, it's like a shelter, it's so 
um, yeah, kind of taking us back to something completely shared. And I, I think that's really fascinating yeah. about it. Yeah. And it is um, the lovely thing about, oh, there are lots of lovely things about mm. the hut, but one of the lovely things about the hut is it was built on a place called Portal Point uh, on the Antarctic Peninsula and it was a refuge and to have a refuge hut at Portal Point seemed very profoundly metaphorical. Um, the hut is um, a portal to Deception Island which is elsewhere, um, it's a portal to uh, an imaginary journey but it's also very physical evidence even as a replica of, of what it means to establish shelter, um, how to live together in um, har a harsh environment, um, how to make this small home. I mean, I love the, 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 the story of in the memoir that I read um, <laughs> that they played lots of Scrabble, mm -hmm. they played games of cards, um, and even though they didn't have a Scrabble dictionary to check their words, mm -hmm. they managed to agree, agree on that. Mm -hmm. And I know that it's, it wasn't always the case that everybody always got on and, mm -hmm. and the darkness of the long winter, uh, the polar night, you know, up, up to 119, 120 days of darkness um, had a huge psychological impact on the, the men that were working there um, and made it very difficult. Um, it, 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 there's a report written in um, 1959 uh, by uh, the base doctor at Halley uh, and he was talking about the way that this kind of tight-knit family um, became much more irascible, harder to motivate, there was appetite loss just because it was dark. Um, they, they were often uh, trapped in the hut for days at a time because of the weather outside. And so this refuge um, hut, it wasn't a permanent base, it was for field trips but it does seem to represent that kind of mm. um, fundamental shelter mm. and uh, shared living and mm. mutual support. Mm. Is that why you've chosen this specific cut? Is it yeah. quite like a, because of that kind of transience and, I don't know, solitude, like, a refuge there? It, like? Yeah, I, I, there were a number of reasons for choosing the hut. I mean, part of it was um, because because of the name. <clears throat> Fundamentally, it was because I saw a photograph in the archives mm. um, that was just astonishingly beautiful mm. of this uh, hut in a state of partial disrepair. The cladding that you see mm. there had been partly um, torn off um, on a polished rock, apparently polished rock, and heaps of ice in the sea and the mountains mm. in the distance. And it's just extraordinary. Mm. I mean, it's pinned down with these rope metal tie downs. Mm in cement blocks mm. um, and it's just there I mean mm. years after um, uh, having been abandoned mm. it was in a very remote location mm. and then it's portal point I mean the very mm. name suggests mm. that we needed it but we couldn't have used a deception island hut mm. for the deception island installation because they're too big mm. and this is um, the perfect size really mm. it's a slightly barking mad operation mm. you know inviting an audience of five maximum seven mm. to see something um, it, it takes two days to build and mm. two days to take or a day to take down mm. um, so it's not the most portable of huts mm. but it's it's still mm. a great experience and I think it makes it you know taking people through the door mm. um, makes it really immersive mm. um, because you go from this 21st century downing site mm. you go through the door and you're immediately in a different world mm. it's dark in there mm. your eyes take a while to adjust mm. to the darkness um, and then 
you're back in the 1950s mm. in the Antarctic mm. and and then because people are listening uh, to the uh, to the sounds and the music and the words mm. through headphones while they watch the film which mm. is projected on the window um, it feels as if this world is entering your head it becomes mm. a really sort mm. of properly sensory experience mm. yeah. yeah it was snowing here the other day and I know one of my friends was just working here and, yeah. and he just wanted somewhere warm so he went in didn't know what it was and kind of was put a reenactment of needing some shelter from from the snow yeah, um, yeah. yeah. we certainly lear- learned something about roof kneeling in roof tacks in mm. the snow uh, because <laughs> it was cold and the roofing felt gets mm. really brittle in the cold um, and it kept cracking mm. and, and we were then thinking if you take the temperature down by uh, several degrees um, and you've got a blizzard uh, or just snow mm. uh, and you're trying to nail in these mm. tacks with gloves on mm. How do you do that? How do you hold the tacks? Mm. If you take your gloves off, mm. are your fingers going to stick to the tacks? Mm. You get really cold. You can't feel your mm. fingers. Um, so it was. It was. Yeah. Mm. I had quite a lot of respect for the people who built it before, but I have an awful lot more now. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I know you work at UEA as well, and John McGregor there has kind of written his book Gleanful Stand and about um, men in Antarctica and they're in a hut station K. I was wondering whether you kind of felt a connection to that from having built your own hut or how kind of if there had been like a exchange of ideas about Antarctica or um, anything like that. Yeah we had a um, it, we were really lucky he came in and did some readings in in the hut mm. when it was up in Norwich um, and he chose an excerpt from early on in the novel where people are being separated, mm. there's a blizzard, a whiteout, and the radio connection is intermittent. Mm. And he used the headphones from the installation mm. to um, give to the audience. Mm. And then he had, he'd set up a radio set on the, um, on the table so that we could hear and see and be immersed in again this mm. uh, experience of trying to listen and a a lot of the book is about language and when language breaks Mm. down one of the tropes about Antarctica is that um, it's so immense and so extraordinary Mm. that it for whatever reason uh, beggars language Mm. Uh, Cherry Apsley Garrard was talking about the worst journey Mm. in the world he said it beggared our language Mm. and that was this sort of sheer hardship of it but the beauty Mm. of it has a similar impact and so we, we were just talking about mm. the Antarctic and language and also about care um, because the book ultimately mm. is a very unsentimental and beautiful mm. study of how people care and take care for one another. Basalt speaks Dribble sodium and chlorine as you will. I give you olivine and feldspar. Take magnetite and hematite for sulfate and magnesium. The ocean replies. Oceanus. Moana. Valta Mary. I will weigh the ocean am. Hard this rock against your breaking waves. A 
and fly. Pockmarked by the rain's whip, the dark sea curls back its lips. So I've just come out of the film and I'm here with Elizabeth again and yeah I found that footage really moving. I thought I I thought I'd be more tuned to the sounds and kind of the birds and the the words they were so touching but that footage um yeah it was really moving as well and we kind of talked a bit about the men the scientific research um but also there was obviously that whaling history as well before that and those the whales are almost as big and as spectacular as the glaciers I was wondering if you could talk a bit about kind of how you came across that or how you kind of worked with that material in in your poem and your yeah it, it started with um looking at the images of deception island and seeing those very haunting evocative pictures of the digester shed and all those ruined at uh, the sort of the rusting tanks so I was looking a bit more into whaling history uh, reading some of the memoirs um, and it just struck me that on the one hand there's this industrial scale exploitation and massacre and it's genuinely is a huge bloodbath mm. um, showing the worst of humankind in its sort of exploitative tendencies you know it's a sort of um, it's a car, you know, the, before carbon fuel, it was the whale, the whale oil. But at the same time, the men who were working in those appalling conditions came from poor backgrounds, uh, were just working to send money home, and they weren't murderous killers. Um, so I think it really struck me when the other thing was the um, black and white pictures that I've been looking at mm. up until that point and then looking at the whaling photographs mm. it's just drenched, they're drenched in red mm. which makes them even more shocking mm. um, but I think all the time with, uh, partic particularly with deception, you, you, you've got these contrasts between the brutality of the whaling the, the care and attentiveness of the scientists you've got these sort of individual tragedies um, awe-inspiring environment mm. um, and this sense of geological time mm. And that um, the human is a precarious and frail mm. inhabitant of that environment, and which I think becomes most evident against the sort of volcanic mm. backdrop. Mm. Um, and ultimately, I just looked at a, the sequence of animals who were just trying to survive, mm. um, and mm. human beings were one of those. Yeah, yeah. I think it definitely it wasn't a sense of the British explorer man hero it was kind of a small man just trying to survive as well just not like being caught up in the whole system as well not yeah. kind of glorifying it in any way um yeah that was really interesting yes it sort of plays against that mm. hero narrative mm. that you get a lot mm. with the antarctic you know mm. intrepid explorer mm. um surviving against the odds mm. I'd, I'd, I, th I i think it feels to me a lot of the real heroism is about these very small acts mm. of survival mm. and, and mutual care. Mm. And there was a moment where they're kind of playing, I think there was a couple of women as well playing in the snow and it's just like, oh, it's also a place of laughter and yeah. Yeah. like there is this violence, but also 
like with everything, there is both. That's yeah. that's part of survival. Yeah. yeah. Yes, that was a, that was a strange piece of footage because mm. um, women weren't allowed in the Antarctic, mm. um, not certainly not to work, mm. um, but they did travel as wives um, on some of the ships, not mm. the scientific research ships. Mm. But I, I, I really don't know. I mean, keep meaning to find out, but mm. I think they may well have come across with the governor of the Falklands okay. for a, a, a state visit mm. to. Uh, because they very much have the kind of woolen, buttoned-up coats. Like it was, yeah, surreal, yeah, surreal, Smart, yeah. inappropriate shoes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, there was actually, I think, the Chileans, um, as a part of trying to establish a claim, mm. um, actually brought three or four families to live in the Antarctic, really? possibly in the forties or fifties. I can't remember the dates. Mm. Uh, but so for th- three or four years, oh. families did actually live on. on one of the Chilean bases and go mm. to school and, and I think the Argentinian there was an Argentinian baby who was born in the Antarctic again it's all mm. part of this trying to establish a claim mm. but um, nobody actually owns the Antarctic it's governed by international agreement mm. also I mean the words and that the sounds they were so like material and tactile as well you're talking about like the handwriting and it felt like I know the way that the words being pronounced and being spliced with the images like it really like evoked that quite strongly even the idea of trying to name these places which we don't own we don't govern we've called it pendulum and deception island and portal it again it just feels quite like emotive and but also futile to just name these places that are just completely i don't know ice and snow and violence and all these different things yeah um, yes, I saw two two things there. The naming is, I, th- I think, the naming is brilliant. <coughs> mm. um, it, it's become much more a case now that places are named after particular people mm. who've contributed something to Antarctic mm. science. But uh, there's some great names: Inexpressible Island, mm. uh, just because when the people going past are just feeling uh, hopeless. Mm. And there's, I dread to think why Circumcision Point was called Circumcision <laughs> Point, <laughs> but mm. probably shape. Um, but the materiality of the the language was something mm. important. The sound of the words, mm. actually, the way the um, the poem is structured on the page mm. is, is part of that. Mm. But when Sam and I were listening to the voice actors who were auditioning mm. to play the part, um, one of the things we were really conscious of was the texture mm. of their voice, mm. and then um, thinking about the contrasting textures mm. and. Um, the character of whether it was the mm. basalt or the mm. Uh, mm. the whale, you mm. know, what what kind of tone we wanted. Mm. Did I notice that your name was Witch in yes. that? <laughs> <laughs> That's lovely. Yeah, it was um, just trying to acknowledge the presence of the poet as somebody who'd effectively curated these archival mm. voices. Mm. So this is. I wanted that to be part of the whole story, but not in a sort of footnotey way, Mm. uh, Mm. so that it was recognising the inaccuracy, if you like, Mm. or the uh, personal quality of Mm. the curation, Mm. as well as the um, magic that can be evoked by Mm. language. I think that's a lovely place to end our discussion on the magic of language. Uh, thank you so much for speaking to me, Elizabeth. Thank you very much for coming. I'm no really glad you enjoyed it. 
Make sure to follow the Cambridge Festival on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook and YouTube and go to the Say That Again Slowly podcast on SoundCloud for more fascinating interviews with experts on time travel, aliens, counter-speech and groundbreaking medicine, just to name a few. Thank you for listening. <laughs>